Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. So we're going to start this morning with a prayer, and then we will jump right in. So let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this day, for this beautiful day, and we ask that you bless each one of us, empty us of anything that weighs us down, that your spirit may fill us up and overflow from us out into the world you love and the world you've called us to serve. Today, we pray especially for those that we hold in our hearts and minds, those in our community who need your healing touch, those who are nearing death. May your presence and your peace surround them and uplift them. For those of us who support them, may we always remember your promise of eternal life. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One quick reminder note. For those of you who have, we are nearing the end of our pledge season here at St. Michael, which for those of you who don't know what this is, um, in essence, we, <laughs> now act like some of you must not know what this is because I don't talk about it every day. Um, what we do here, and which I find, I found out years ago that was not necessarily universal in Christian churches, is we think about what we will give to the church next year, and we then let the church know. And that way we're able to set a budget. There are plenty of churches around that don't set budgets. They basically say to the congregation, every Sunday you make a gift, you give of what you can, and that's how we function. And that sounds, that actually sounds pretty faithful to me. It also would make me completely neurotic. And so we don't do that. We haven't done it forever, ever. And so instead, what we ask everybody to think about is, what might you give in support for mission and ministry next year? And then you just tell us. A lot of people feel uncomfortable because they, they perceive that as debt. And I mean, yeah, maybe, but not really. So it's really just about letting us know how we might be able to push on and do more next year. We did a lot in 2018. We grew in many ways. All three of the revenue indicators that we have on our budget, which is pledged revenue, unpledged revenue, and plate offering, all three exceeded their budget. And nobody on finance or anything remembers when that has ever happened. And so, especially plate, that rarely ever exceeds budget, if ever. And so, great for us, very good indicators all the way around for us, and we want you to be a part of that. And so, if you've not yet made a pledge or a promise for what you can do to help support us financially in 2019, then grab one of these little nifty pledge cards. They're around all over the place, and just, just for those of you who feel uncomfortable with it, we actually don't use the word pledge on this card. So if that's a problem for you, or, and this is, a, this is very true, if you're giving out of a foundation, then you actually can't make a pledge. It has to be a gift. And so we make sure that these work for everybody. And so they work for you, I promise. <laughs> so grab one on your way out. We've got about two more weeks where we accept before we kind of cut it off, and then we have to make our budget. It does not mean you cannot give beyond that date. It just means it won't be counted as we set our mission parameters and vision for 2019. So thank you all. Also, just to make sure you have it, our purple bookmarks are at all the doors so that you can make sure you know our schedule. As I mentioned last time, the only Wednesday we are not meeting is over spring break on March 13th, which is 
less because kids aren't in school and more because I will be in Jerusalem. And so I'm not here, although I wasn't here last week either. I missed you, by the way. Um, I hope that you had a good study with Mary. I love Mary, and she's great. Um, I was over talking at the same time to the Mary Craig class at the women's club, which was super fun, and so it was, it was great. We had people talking all over the place. So glad that Mary was able to be with you, but I missed you. Glad I'm back. So we're going to jump in here. We are in chapter 15, and chapter 15 is a chapter about the Jerusalem Council. You may have, in other studies, heard about the Jerusalem Council. Maybe you wondered what that was. Maybe you didn't wonder quite enough to go look it up. And so today, we're going to talk about what this really means. So the Jerusalem Council gets at the big question that I've noted multiple times in our study this year. Do you have to be Jewish to follow Jesus? That's the big question. Now, there are obvious ramifications around being Jewish first. And although you might think that they've actually already settled this question, what happens with the Jerusalem Council is just what happens in any church group anywhere. Somebody's doing something faithful and good and right, and they've made a decision that is working, and then somebody at the home office says, wait a minute, we were not a part of that decision, we did not give it our stamp of approval, we were not consulted, and we are very important. And so you need to make sure that that question and decision is made through our office, not through whatever it is that you are doing out there. Sound familiar? Right, this happens all the time, still happens. And that's effectively what's going on in chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is that the church is growing. We have seen, particularly with Paul and Barnabas and their friends, they're out there planting churches, starting these communities. Those communities are growing. The good news, the gospel message is getting out there. The bad news is Jerusalem feels like they have the most or the best way to do this Jesus-following stuff. And so they call everyone back to town, and they say, we have to have a little meeting and have a decision all together. Paul and Barnabas, who up to this point, we saw in chapters especially 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas have been popping around, right? It's one city after another, after another, after another, and they're meeting at the synagogue. They're making people angry with the good news, right? They're making people angry for Jesus. And they get called back to Jerusalem so that they can be part of this decision. As we get into the Jerusalem Council, it's important for us to note that it's not just Jewish to follow Jesus, but there are some good things for us today too. So let's look at the outline of chapter 15, as we always do. First, you have the Jerusalem Council. Then, from the Jerusalem Council, you have a letter to the Gentiles. And then finally, you have an unfortunate, ridiculous, embarrassing situation where Paul and Barnabas break up. They have a little fight, and they are no longer besties. Okay. First, Jerusalem Council. So if we take a look at the Jerusalem Council, we see that the general structure is sensible. Jesus, 
died, resurrected in Jerusalem. His followers went to Jerusalem after his resurrection. It's where they received the Holy Spirit. It's where they began to preach. It's where they began to be known to people beyond their circle, whether that was through Peter or Stephen or on and on. It makes sense that the church is rooted in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem became dangerous. And so you had people like Philip, Paul, Barnabas, and others who just left. It was just too hard. And they realized that more people needed to hear this story than just the people in Jerusalem. And so as they leave and begin to have success in these places that are less difficult for the Jesus followers, the people back in Jerusalem are still fighting the good fight. And just like we see with other traditions, Rome claims all this authority for Catholics. We have a decent amount of at least traditional authority in our tradition given to Canterbury. That's really what's happening here is Jerusalem is where everything started. And so that's where everyone comes back to have this very important debate. So Paul and Barnabas are called back to Jerusalem and we see that when they get back to Jerusalem, there are people within those ranks who are trying to make sure that Judaism remains the most important starting place for following Jesus. So open up to chapter 15. I'm going to start with verse 4, read a couple of verses. When they came to Jerusalem, this is Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said it is necessary for them, non-Jews, to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. So we'll pause there. What is very important for us to remember is that the Jewish people who began to follow Jesus did not think they were leaving Judaism. Right? It's easy for us to forget that. We definitely have a separate tradition now. Right? 2,000 years later, you are Jewish or you are Christian. Of course, you can be a Messianic Jew, which is a totally different thing, so just leave that alone. But you're basically Jewish or you're Christian. At this point in time, this is only a couple decades after Jesus' resurrection, the Jews who were following Jesus believed they were doing Judaism right because there had been all of this prophetic talk about a Messiah coming to save them. They believed Jesus was that Messiah. And so for them, they are being the best kind of Jewish person. It is very disconcerting for them. That's very dramatic. Hey, tell her we say hi. It is very disconcerting for them that all of these other people who are not Jews are somehow getting in on this good stuff because it doesn't make any sense, right? It's easy for us to look at them and say they're so exclusive. They are so ugly. They are so self-centered. They are whatever, whatever. I like to give them the benefit of the doubt that it's less intentionally about a power grab 
and it's more so because it does not make sense to them. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Why are non-Jews, why do they care? And if, if they're doing this, then okay, that is... <laughs> hey, everybody. If your phones are on, turn them off. I think it's the third time something's come up. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to them that people who aren't Jewish want to follow Jesus without being Jewish. What, what in the world? And so although, yes, we could judge them a little bit, I think it's more important for us to see them sympathetically because we do the same thing. They love being Jewish. They think Jesus is great. They think Jesus helps them be a better Jew. So if someone wants to follow Jesus, well, you don't do that outside of Ju Judaism. That, that doesn't make any sense. So come on, be Jewish too. But you got to be Jewish too. And that's where Paul and Barnabas have begun to skew off in the sense that they begin to understand that Jesus is bigger than Judaism. And so they're not pushing any of these things. Peter has even had an experience where he is probably pretty sure of this too, although he's not quite as much of an advocate as Paul. Today, we very, we do this exact same thing in almost every area of our life. Think about anyone who's not a part of a group that you identify with, who wants to be a part of that group you identify with, and what's really the first thing that we do? We want them to conform to whatever being a part of that group is meant to be. How many times do you hear someone say, this is America, learn how to speak English? Yeah? I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever said that. Um, I had... I had a seriously, well, I was going to say disturbing. It wasn't disturbing. I'm not that fragile. But it's, it was a, an unexpected experience when I was first a priest. This is in Alabama. And a woman had done something. You know, you know, my background is interfaith and conflict and that sort of stuff. And somehow that had gotten out. And I don't know why that translated into me being interested in the Spanish language. I don't know. I've never studied Spanish. I have no idea. But somehow interfaith meant Spanish? I don't know. So a woman said to me, you know, sweet lady, caught me in just the common area one Sunday at, at church and said, I'm really interested in learning Spanish. And I thought that is so nice. I mean, that's like this multicultural, like intercultural thing. Could we have Spanish classes at church? I was thinking, oh my gosh, that is so nice. We should really do that. She said, because I cannot get my gardener to cut my bushes right. Uh, huh, it's not exactly what I was expecting. So it's that kind of good effort, you know, good try. The desire for us to have people interested in joining us be like us is a very real thing. Functionally speaking, there's no difference between that way of thinking and what the Jewish people in Jerusalem are doing in this chapter. They're not being ugly, but they're saying this is how you do Judaism and Jesus following. This is how that works. You want to do it, well, then you do it this way, not your way. It's this way.
come on in, but you got to do all the stuff. So when everybody gets back together again, they begin to have a big debate. And it's Peter who pops up for the first time in a few chapters to actually claim what it is that they are debating. What's interesting about this dynamic is we believe, we talked about Peter and Paul as sort of the big rocks, right? You kind of have Peter and Paul as representative of all the good stuff that happened in the early church. But at this point in time, they don't really like Paul. Paul is fine, but Paul is a secondary player. Peter is not. Peter was there with Jesus. He was the rock. He's the first person to do public preaching. He's almost been killed multiple times. He's rooted in Jerusalem. That makes a big difference. And he has a lot more authority than Paul. That doesn't quite probably make sense to us because for us, Paul is hugely authoritative, but not right now. So in the Jerusalem Council, it takes someone like Peter to actually stand up and make the argument. So let's look at verse 7. I'm going to read a few verses. Peter said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. He is very humble. And God who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Okay, did you hear that? God knows the human heart, and he gave them the Spirit just like us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. It's big. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. That hurts. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter is clear that the Spirit's working through anyone who believes in Jesus. But he goes a step beyond that. Peter is making explicitly clear that the Jews have not done this right either. That's biting. He says, why would you place on the neck of the disciples a yoke that we could not bear? What that really means is, why did Jesus come at all? Because when God tried back with Moses to actually create and save this world, it didn't work because the Jews misunderstood. Doesn't mean they're bad people. It means they are human. In the great arc of salvation, the one thing that is constant is God's attempts at helping us out in our imperfection. And it's finally ended with Jesus, which is why we do not earn salvation. We do not earn it. We receive it because God loves us. The end. Do not put rules around it, even though we like rules. We like to try and say, like, we're a little closer to salvation than that person. Like, that person might be saved, yes, but us first. No. It is by grace. The end. Peter stands up and gives this idea of grace in a formal way 
for the first time. And if you can put yourself in Peter's shoes, if we hearken back many chapters ago to Cornelius and his experience with seeing the vision with all of the animals in the sheet and being told to eat, then going to Cornelius, and while he is speaking to Cornelius, Cornelius and his companions receive the spirit they had not been baptized. Peter had to have been confused. He saw it, he believed it was true, but didn't understand how that worked. At this point, what could be years later, we don't really know, Peter has come to accept it. Maybe he doesn't even quite understand it yet, but he has created this idea of grace that of course makes sense to us now. It's part, been part of a cornerstone of Christian theology since. But the idea of grace that we do not direct, we do not decide, that is just simply given, is what he really articulates in this section. Following this argument and more debate, James stands up, and we see what we call the judgment of James. Excuse me, who's James? Yes, Jesus' brother. Well done. There are two Jameses in this point in time. One's dead, so go back a little bit. There was James, son of Zebedee. We hear about that James in the Gospels. That's an apostle James. At this point in time, that apostle James has been martyred. We don't see that in the story, but that's more or less the historic context around it. So although some people have thought this James was son of Zebedee James, it is almost certainly not the case. This James is Jesus's brother, which makes complete sense with one big caveat. I thought Mary was a virgin forever. Oh, no. So there is this sense in the Catholic Church, there's a theological, so I, let me say this first. In the Catholic Church, Mary is not only a virgin conceiving Jesus and bearing Jesus, but she has perpetual virginity. Okay, so I'm, you know, I can be on board with the whole conceiving. Um, you know, I saw a little meme the other day um, where it had a picture of the Virgin Mary, and it said abstinence, 99.99% effective. You know, <laughs> think about it. I know, it took you a minute. Okay, so... I'm good with Mary conceiving in a, in a mysterious way, right? She is still a real person. And if you bear a child, that takes care of your whatever virginity. That's just, that's how it works. Okay, so the perpetual virginity was a construct of the Catholic Church centuries later. In order to lift up the divinity of Jesus. There was a question along the way, which is not important. How could Jesus be fully divine if he was born by a human mother? Which necessitated this construct around Mary that she was better than other human people. Still human, but like the best human. And so she created this perpetual virginity idea as being, in essence, herself infallible and flawless, but still human, so that then she was pure to bear a divine son of God. Does that make sense? I get it. 
I, I am totally sympathetic with that construct. There is, historically, sociologically, there is no evidence that Mary was a virgin. And if she were a good Jewish woman, she would certainly have born more children. Now, could Jesus have been her first and oldest? Totally, no problem. But that she would have never had more children does multiple things wrong. That's not being a good Jewish person, right? There, you just, you have kids. That's part of your responsibility, which is why old world, and that's an old world idea, right? If any of you are kind of old world families, you're sort of not done growing up until you have children, right? I don't care how old you are, why are you not married and why have you not had kids, right? I mean, that might be a funny cliche. That is not a funny cliche if you're from those families. That's a real thing. And for Jews, that is absolutely true. Mary would have had more kids. James, we note that Jesus had brothers in the gospel. There are multiple words for brothers. The word used then in that gospel means biological brothers. Fast forward to Acts. Jesus is dead and gone and ascended. Who's in charge? Peter's a good option, but Jesus' actual brother makes great sense. There's some good genes there, right? So bring James over, and James takes over that church in Jerusalem. So when James speaks up, it's sort of like Jesus-ish is coming on to give us a declaration, right? I'd say he's Jesus adjacent, right? So Jesus is not there, but James is close. So what does James think? James stands up and presents his judgment. Chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 19. James says a bunch of stuff, quotes Amos. Then he says, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. So James is no poet, but he gets to the point. In essence, what James is saying is there are good things in the Jewish tradition. There are good morals and ethics that guide your life. Don't lose those. But the other ancillary stuff is not necessary for you to do. The other hoops aren't necessary for you to jump through. So think about all these Gentiles who are out there following Jesus. They are living within a Roman culture. That Roman culture is mm, loose, we will say, right? It was very common to drink too much. It was very common to be promiscuous sexually. It was very common to go to many temples and go to who knows where and do whatever you wanted to gratify yourself personally. So James makes a very important distinction. You may not have to jump through the hoops of Judaism like, God bless, being an adult and having to go through the male stuff, right? Circumcision as an adult, not fun. So all the Gentile men were like, yes. <laughs> you may not have to do those things, 
but there are still these really good ideas, parameters around how you treat one another, how you live your life, monogamous, sober, and on and on. Keep that stuff. So he's done a pretty thoughtful thing here. What we get at the end of the Jerusalem Council is a decision that seems to work well. And yet, if you've ever been with any deliberative body of any kind, just because they've had a little debate and taken a vote and made a decision does not mean that the other people are going to go along with it. It's a good starting place. But then you actually have to sell it. You have to go out with an ad campaign and convince everyone that that was the right decision and they should follow it too. So that's the end of the actual council portion of this chapter. Any questions before we get to the ad campaign portion? Wow, all right. Now we get to the letter to the Gentiles. As noted, decision made, good. Now we have to actually sell it to everybody. It's not really for the Gentiles. This is really for the Jews who are worshiping with the Gentiles in those spaces. James knows that Paul and Barnabas aren't quite the core leadership. As I noted earlier, Paul and Barnabas have done good stuff, but they are kind of the second tier leaders of this fledgling Christian group. They're not quite as high as people like Peter and James, and we will see then Judas and Silas. So Barnabas knows, I'm sorry, James knows that he can't just give Paul a letter to take to the churches he founded to tell them that Paul was right. That doesn't quite work. Paul walks in and says, got this letter from the head office, and they said, listen to me, I'm right. That you need someone to verify that that was actually a decision made by other people and not you creating a decision to help support your case. So they send Paul and Barnabas back to these churches with Judas and Silas. I assume you know that's not like the Judas Judas. This is a different Judas. Okay, just want to make that clear. So that Judas dead, this Judas alive, and he's able to go and help support Paul's case. So let's look at the actual letter because I think it's decent for us to read together. So verse 22, and read a few of these verses so that we see what the letter says. So they, James and the council, sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. That's so funny. So in essence, what he's saying is Barnabas and Paul went and did stuff and we didn't tell them to do stuff. We didn't give them our blessing, but they did it anyway. And they have disturbed you. But they're beloved right? If that's not like a bless your heart kind of opening to a letter, I'm not sure what it is. Okay, keep on going. Verse 26, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit 
and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from the blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> I really hope they wrote farewell. <laughs> That's funny. So this letter goes out to basically say, You've heard from other people who aren't quite official that these are the things that you're supposed to be doing. We want to tell you that according to the Jerusalem group, the founders of the group, bless it, the founders of the group, that what they are telling you is true. What they are telling you is the way that we want you to behave. I lost my train of thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to, I don't know what I, where I was going with that. So Paul concerns himself. Take a look real quickly at the very end of the letter itself. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Verse 29. That might sound a little odd, but when animals were sacrificed to idols, it was about releasing the blood of the animal. And so they would slit the neck of any animal. They would let the animal bleed into some kind of vessel. And it was the blood that was believed to be the life of any animal that was actually given. It was not the body of the animal itself. So if you kind of think rich people would do this, goats, sheep, you name it, but they didn't need the animal. So what a lot of Romans would do is they would take the animal carcass and go eat it. Well, sure, why not? If you had Jews who were bringing in these sheep, goats, whatever, perfectly good, they were slitting their throats, letting them bleed out, that didn't take too long, and then they were just discarding the body well, that's some good lamb. Like, why not eat it? I'm in for that. I mean, why not? So what they're telling them is, don't do that anymore. Because Jews don't do that for a particular reason. And the particular reason is that it is now ritually unclean. And so don't eat the stuff that's ritually unclean. Okay. Then you've got fornication, the other big thing. The other big thing that we see all around the Roman culture, both Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman cultures, was the promiscuity. Yes, people got married, but they were married for business reasons. It was a legal relationship. It was not about love. It was not about any of that sort of stuff. And monogamy was for sure not held up as anything necessary. But it was for the Jews. And so now these Gentile followers of Jesus needed to join them in creating a life that was ordered around monogamy and mutual respect. Why? Not just because they were unfun, but because they grounded their identity in respect and love for other people. Fornication is fundamentally about disrespecting and is absolutely not about love. And so in those couple ways, they're trying to create a new life 
for these Gentile followers of Jesus. So any questions about that? The letter section is not super complicated. Last section, Paul and Barnabas. Good grief. Paul and Barnabas have been partners for a bit. They've gone around founding multiple churches. And now that they are done with the Jerusalem Council, so remember they're out there founding churches, planting churches. They're called back to Jerusalem to be part of the council to make this big decision. Now they're done. They're going to go do more of what they were doing. Before we get into the details of this, you are, have likely heard about Paul's missionary journeys, right? That's, that's an idea. Paul had three major missionary phases of his life. Some people say a fourth, but the fourth was actually on his way to Rome as a prisoner. He still wrote letters and talked to people, but it's not quite the same as the first three. The first missionary journey is done. That's what happened before the Jerusalem Council, where he more or less went into Syria, Cyprus, and Turkey. His first, his missionary journeys got farther and bigger as they went. The first one, relatively small, planted a few churches, was called back to Jerusalem. Now Paul's ready for what will be his second missionary journey. And he wants Barnabas to go with him because Barnabas is a good guy. Well, they had more people with them the first time, and one of those people was John Mark. John Mark, who could potentially be the person who writes the Gospel of Mark. We don't know. But it would make sense. Most scholars think that the Gospels were written by students or disciples of the original apostles, or maybe Paul. So it would make great sense that this John Mark that is being referenced here is ultimately the author of the Gospel of Mark. Timing-wise, that would work. John Mark, though, is much younger, and he went with Paul and Barnabas to a number of different spots to help them create these churches, plant these churches. But in Pamphylia, something happens, and John Mark leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. We don't know in the moment what happens, and so you don't need to turn, turn to this, but in chapter 13, verse 13, Paul and Barnabas had gotten to Pamphylia, and we see in that verse, then Paul and his companions, sorry, then Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. John, however, left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all we get. John left them, went back to Jerusalem. So he's been there, they get there, and John probably says, hey, I want to go with you again. Paul's having none of this, because Paul said, you deserted us. We were doing good work, and you deserted us. And Paul implies in this, in this end of chapter 15 that John Mark was afraid, and that's why he left. We don't know that that happened in chapter 13, but we also know, especially in last chapter, right? In last chapter, they stoned Paul and thought he was dead, and then he got up and kept going. So this was not easy and convenient and comfortable work. So Paul's implication here makes sense, that they would have gone from one city to another, made people angry, they would run them out of the city, they would dust the you know, dust their shoes off and keep moving. A kid 
anyone, but especially a young person probably can only take so much of that. And so he's gone back to Jerusalem. Barnabas wants John Mark to go with them again. Barnabas seems to also imply, this is not all very clear, that John Mark's a kid. He made a mistake. He needs a second chance. Barnabas says, bring him. Paul says, no. That is enough for them to have such a disagreement. The NRSV translates the Greek word as disagreement. The actual Greek word implies a big, huge argument. So, yes, disagreement is a very nice way to put it. But it was not that. It was something that was big enough for them to ultimately say, then you do what you want and I will do what I want. Goodbye. And that's what happened. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and Barnabas goes to Cyprus and beyond. So Barnabas is still going to be doing the same kind of work, just not with Paul. Paul instead chooses Silas, and Paul and Silas leave and go north back up into what today would be Turkey. Silas must have been pretty good at delivering the letter because Paul said, join me. And another interesting note, we don't know this yet, but it will be important later. Silas is, like Paul, a Roman citizen. How? I don't know, and we don't know, but ends up later in the story that that makes an impact. It's important and valuable that Silas is actually a Roman citizen just like Paul. And so Barnabas and Paul split. Basically, that's it. They won't really do anything else together again, and they go off planting churches with their new partners, John Mark and Silas. I think that for us, this story of Paul and Barnabas is important because too often we find ourselves in arguments with people where both sides are kind of right in different ways. So if we look at this argument, Barnabas is, I would say, right in the sense that well, everyone should get a second chance. If you want to try again, even if he does leave again, what's the harm in that? Try. But then on the other hand, Paul's perhaps right in his own way. This is serious work, and you've got to have committed people. And John Mark has shown that he's not committed enough. Doesn't mean he can't go do good work in some way, but what we are doing is too stressful, too dangerous, and needs someone who is most committed. They're both kind of right. The worst arguments are between two parties who are kind of right, right? If one party's right and the other's wrong pretty objectively, then that's relatively simple. But think about what's going on in the world today, right? We have leaders in almost every level of government who do nothing because they're both kind of right. And they will not admit that they might have a little kind of wrong, too. And so instead, they grip the one thing that is right, even though lots of other things around them may be wrong. And then the other side grips the one thing that is right, even though a lot of the other things around them might be wrong. And they do no compromising. I don't know if you all know this. Um, when I was first out of 
first in my first graduate program, I was very focused on conflict mediation. So I was at one point a legal conflict mediator, like a certified conflict mediator, um, which by the way, I had no idea would be so helpful now. <laughs> so I was fascinated with conflict and the, the way that people are motivated to win. If someone is not heard real early on, then what they do is they dig their heels in and they ultimately just want to win. They don't want to be right anymore. Being right is where someone starts. But once someone has not treated them respectfully, then they don't want to be right anymore. They want to win. That is a massive problem for us socially. It is really hard. It takes a lot of concentration and a lot of balance for you to be in the heat of an argument and realize that you've made the transition from wanting to be right to wanting to win. Because you have to actually step back and say, hold on. I do have some good idea here, as do you. Can we take our ideas, let go of the things that actually aren't that great, take my good idea and your good idea and have them complement each other for something that's even better than either of us would do on our own. Oh my gosh, how often does that happen? Rarely. We almost celebrate now the seeing two sides clash. It's, it's almost entertainment. I mean, when we started to have, I sound like a broken record, when we started to have to get people to watch TV 24 hours a day, well, guess what doesn't keep your attention? compromise and productivity <laughs> that doesn't sell so you've got to have constant conflict or else no one tunes in and so we create and construct conflict even when there isn't any have you ever been in a situation where you're watching someone argue about something on tv and you think why is this even a thing this doesn't matter at all. Like, it doesn't matter to anybody. But they have sure made it seem like it matters a lot to everyone when it is the dumbest, simplest thing. That's not always the case. Sometimes the conflict does matter. But oftentimes, it's whatever they can do to act like it really matters. Personally, everybody in this room, almost everyone in this room, is likely in some kind of conflict with someone. That could be a huge, deeply loving kind of conflict, and it can also be a cheap, shallow kind of conflict. I won't ask you which one is which. In that conflict, have you flipped to wanting to win? instead of just being right. Sometimes conflict is just, you can't resolve everything. And there are moments where, I mean, any lawyer would tell you, you just, there is just no way forward because there is such fundamental difference that you just can't resolve it. That's infrequent. Most of the time, there is a resolution. But we have been trained too much to not necessarily need it. 
because we don't want a win-win. We really want a win-lose. Don't settle for that. Don't settle for the other person losing so you can win. Because we're told here over and over again that these early church leaders wanted very much for everyone to win. And so they made compromises here and there without losing the essence so that everyone could win. We need more of that. Okay, sermon over. So, five minutes. Any questions or thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Great question. So, question is, as people like Paul and Barnabas and others were planting churches, what then did those churches look like? Were they worshiping in a Jewish style, or were they doing something different? The answer, the answer really is it depends, because some of the communities, it depended on if that community was fundamentally Jewish or fundamentally not. Now, there were Jews everywhere, okay? So pretty much there were Jews in every single one of those planted churches that Paul and Barnabas were doing. But those numbers slid. You may have started with mostly Jews, but very quickly maybe you had a minority population of Jewish people, and vice versa. It is most likely that what the early Christians were doing had a very similar look to Judaism. However, what we know in the first century, whether it was right at this date, we're probably, we're probably sort of in the 50s at this point, maybe the late 40s. If, at, if in 50 they were doing this, we're not positive, but within the next few decades they were, and that is they were having what we would call Eucharist services, mostly because a Eucharist service is a Passover dinner. So that's not too far afield from what the Jews would have known how to do. But they did a Passover meal or a Seder dinner once a year because Jesus made that a very a cornerstone of his last 48 hours. Early Christians within only a few decades were making that the root of what they did in worship. In fact, one of my favorite places I've ever been to is called Shepherd's Fields which is right outside of Bethlehem. And it's kind of the place where someone thinks the shepherds were when the angels appeared to them. I don't know. That's one of the things where like, here's a field, not in Bethlehem. Maybe the angels were here. Sounds good. So what they did though, is they created a little chapel and people have been praying there since at least the third century. But almost certainly archaeological evidence seems to indicate that it was even in the first century. There were people who went to that spot because it's where the angels appeared to the shepherds, and they were praying there from really the first few decades. And what you see in this cave, what's fascinating about it is they had to do it in secret, and so they had created a cave that was quite large. I mean, I would say it's probably not quite as big as this chapel, but it might be 80%. I mean, it's a decent-sized cave. And there were multiple holes or 
I guess, oh, oh my gosh, word. What I want to say is like rabbit trails. But um, tunnels, good grief, how hard is that? Okay, multiple tunnels off of this center cave space that exited at different parts of this big kind of mountain hill. Why is if anyone found out they were there and came in to try and get them, they could go out any one of these other tunnels and end up on the other side of the mountain and escape. And these tunnels are kind of small. I mean, they're definitely not walk tunnels, but they're kind of run hunched tunnels. Point being, in this cave that dates back to the first century, you walk in, they've got a table with big rocks around it. It looks just like this. There's an altar and there are spots for people to sit. It gives me chills because they were doing this like we do this in the first century. I bet their clothes weren't quite as pretty as ours, but they were doing the same thing. If you all remember back to Vatican II, much of what happened in Vatican II, although you can say there were plenty of kind of socially progressive things that happened in Vatican II, one of the things that happened was a return to first century ways of worship. Anglicans and Episcopalians love that stuff. If you grew up before, with the 1928 prayer book, you almost certainly grew up in a church that did not do Eucharist every Sunday. It was morning prayer, right? I mean, that's what you did. You got together for morning prayer, you had a sermon, you did this stuff. Yeah, Eucharist was sometimes, but every Sunday, no. I mean, I, I don't even know of a church that did Eucharist every Sunday with the 1928 prayer book. When the 1979 prayer book, with the 28 prayer book? Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, St. Michael did it. Because what, one of the things I've been trying to push on is that you can actually have a nice worship service and it doesn't have to be Eucharist, which around here is like sacrilege. Um, but I'm, I'm doing it in, in small ways. So the reason is we've got beautiful ways of worshiping that are not Eucharist services. But with the 1979 prayer book, Eucharist became the way to worship. And all the other ways of worshiping were what you did when you didn't have time or you didn't have a church or you didn't it was absolutely secondary your worship was not as good if it was not eucharist that's not good but it does harken back to the ancient the, the intention was good because we know in the first century they were doing what were effectively eucharist services and so people were attempting to bring us back to our roots in a way and make Eucharist central. So it's a big, long answer to say, much of what we do is a shift in style to how Jewish people worship. Reading of sacred scripture, sharing a meal, that kind of stuff. But it has evolved into something that looks quite different, and especially if you aren't in a liturgical tradition. If you go to a non-liturgical church, a community church or a non-denominational church or even some big Baptist churches, it doesn't look anything like this, what we do. It's fine, but this is probably the way that first century Christians worshipped in most places. All right, happy Wednesday. I'll see you all next week. <laughs>